Welcome to another episode of Context. We are live from Chicago, um, a day before the IDSA International Design Conference. Uh, very excited because we have a lot of designers coming in from out of town, and we are fortunate to have um, some people interviewing on the podcast. So the first one is design professor, a tenure track or a tenured uh, associate, full full time. Full professor. Full professorship. <laughs> Mr. Alex Lobos of RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology. Um, and we um, have the honor to be here with him in Chicago. And uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, very excited to share some thoughts and talk about design. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, uh, you and I have a pretty personal relationship, and I feel like I know you quite well. And hopefully vice versa. Um, but for those who are not, for those who are listening, probably don't know you that well. Um, and so I think my job is to open that <laughs> and get everyone else to get to know the amazing work that you do, the amazing work that you've done, and kind of what you're planning to do. I don't know for the next school year and things like that. Right? Pick your mind, um, pick your brain about things, and uh, kind of go from there. Um, but you're a professor right now at um, RIT, and let's kind of go back from the beginning, right? Sure. Not when, you, not when you were born, but let's go back to when you got interested in design, right? Wow, okay. Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, I guess I grew up in a, you know, in a house that had a lot of design. Uh, you know, my, my dad was an architect. You know, my mom is an interior decora decorator. And then, you know, two of my siblings um, uh, went for architecture. You know, one of them switched to graphic design. So I feel that, you know, growing up, there was a lot of, of uh, you know, design in the house, uh, which was awesome. Um, I, I think that, you know, when I started uh, getting close to, go, or to going into college, um, you know, I actually didn't want to go for design. I, I wanted to pursue music. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I played the drums and, you know, that's what I wanted to do uh, for a living. Um, but, you know, that wasn't playing out uh, originally. So I went uh, into college for graphic design. Back then, I didn't know what industrial design was. Uh, I thought it was just factories and machines and gears. You know, I'm, I'm you know, the story that half of industrial designers tell, but, you know, uh, that's what happened to me. Um, but, you know, um, actually, uh, about a semester uh, into college, you know, I I got into this band that is, you know, very big, and I ended up, you know, quitting college for a couple of years. Um, so, you know, that was a lot of fun. You know, I think that that, you know, helped me a lot to understand what I wanted to do, et cetera, et cetera. So... When I went back to school, that's when I switched to industrial design. Um, and I, I, I remember, you know, my, um, my wife, you know, girlfriend back then, she kept talking to me about industrial design and saying, like, you love to make things and you are super 3D and you should look into this, blah, blah, blah. And um, I remember one day, you know, I was looking at this magazine and I saw, you know, uh, Philip Stark's, you know, uh, juice, mm -hmm. um, you know, the juicer. And when I saw it, I thought, holy cow, you know, like, this is design. This is what I want to do. And then, you know, I realized that that was industrial design. And that's when I, I knew that, you know, I wanted to do that. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's funny how those moments, you know, mark you. And I, I guess in that, in, you know, in that case, Philip Stark was definitely, you know, a turning point for me. Yeah. So all of this happened in, in Guatemala. Uh, so I started, you know, doing some work there. Uh, even before I graduated from college, I was doing, you know, designs and, you know, display designs for, for stores in shopping centers and designing signs too. Uh, so a lot of furniture that I, you know, it, it taught me a lot, but I didn't like it that much. I wanted to design more complex products. Um, and then, you know, locally enough, I got a Fulbright to, you know, come to the States uh, and to, you know, uh, pursue grad school. So, you know, we moved here. I got married just before that. And, you know, we went to University of Notre Dame. You know, that's where I got my, my grad degree. Um, 
And while I was in there, I discovered uh, home appliances and I love them. I, I love how simple they are, how you know they have to be so universal. A lot of people use them day in and day out. Um, and then after graduating, you know, I went to GE Appliances and worked there for a while. Um, awesome experience, you know, uh, learned a lot about, you know, the discipline, uh, work with great people, you know, uh, there, there's, you know, most of them are still, you know, good friends. Um, and then, you know, I was teaching on the side, you know, went back to Guatemala for a couple of years and eventually, you know, uh, made the change to uh, academia, you know, as a full-time career. That's that's amazing. Let's go back uh, to when you were designing even before you were in college. You were designing when you were a college student or in high school? Um, I think in high school I was yeah. like a maker. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, la I, I like to put things together, but I, I didn't really know what design or yeah. design process was. Um, and then, you know, in college, that's when I, you know, started learning the process. And I, I started working professionally before I graduated. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I was uh, in maybe fourth year, you know, back home, uh, uh, ID is a five-year uh, new curriculum. Um, so I was, you know, working, you know, for companies designing, you know, designing this place. And it was crazy. I mean, back then I'm thinking like, you know, I was like, you know, 19 years old. Mm -hmm. And how did someone who owned these, you know, brands said like, sure, we're going to yeah. give you money and we're going to trust you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we assume that in six weeks, you're going to come back with some displays. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's that's how it worked, worked out. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. It's really impressive that you have this upbringing in having creative siblings. That is, I feel, that's kind of a blessing, right? Like you were able to see what art and design was. Um, and it's actually, your parents must be really proud. <laughs> that, that That's really awesome, right? Coming from, I'm one of six, I have a pretty big family, wow. right? Yeah. yeah, and when you're part of a big family growing up, all you want is you want to make sure that your siblings have success. Right. And so what number are you? I'm number know. three. Okay. Yeah. Right. Maybe. And when you want, you know, when you want all your siblings to have success, you, sometimes you can't control that. Right. And so it's, it's actually really nice to see the ambition that your, you know, siblings had. That's, that's pretty amazing. Did they have an influence in you getting into the design field? Um, I, I think they were a big influence in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, like this was something that we always talked about. Or for example, I remember, you know, my, my first semester, I was trolling in one of my classes. You know, it was like a 2D foundations, 3D mm -hmm. foundations. And I remember the day before the final, I was like, I'm done. I don't know <laughs> what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, my sister came in and she, she was like, you are not quitting. We are going to finish, you know, that model that you have to do. So in that case, like she knew the material. She had done that before. You know, she knew uh, what needed to be done. And yeah. I learned so much from her, you know, that night just from seeing her like not giving up. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think going back to what you're saying, it's not that she necessarily, you know, like she wouldn't slide brochures of design <laughs> under the door, you know. Right. Uh, but like she knew right how so things worked. you were all part of this language like there was an understanding that exactly and i think an appreciation so that's you know design fantastic. art in the house mm -hmm. you know that's what fed everyone that's what you know, got mm -hmm. everyone excited yeah so it didn't feel like one of these weird or like you know poor decisions mm -hmm. in terms of a career you know it, it was it, it was sure you know like part of everything mm -hmm. part of the family so I think I think that part was definitely you know very very important, mm -hmm. and I think in general you know like I mean I think of my parents and they have very good you know work ethic uh, you know they they I don't know they have very interesting and very successful careers so I learned a lot from mm -hmm. from that, and one thing that I noticed was I I feel that with the work that they did they were able to influence you know a lot of people, and um, you know sometimes in design like design is maybe not the most um, I don't know. No, it's, it's not a career that makes the most money as uh, mm -hmm. some other careers. But I think that people who are in marketing or engineering or construction, they always go to designers to, you know, 
materialize their dreams. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I learned, I think, especially from my dad, that he was able to inspire or to, you know, turn things mm -hmm. into something that people really liked and, you know, enjoyed. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, that sounds very rewarding. That sounds amazing. Um, and then you talked about taking a break from school to go and play with a band, right? Right. Um, that's also really cool, right? Because I feel like most students don't do that. Most those most students don't. They're like, I gotta finish this degree in X amount of years. But if you don't know what you're doing, like, why are you right? Like, why do you continue to do that? Like, maybe take some time to really discover what you really want or who you really are. So I think that's amazing. Um, what? And this is kind of going into you playing music. What are some of the big bands in that time that you like? that you really admire or really listen to? Right. So, you know, that was uh, back in the 90s. So, mm -hmm. you know, grunge and alternative rock, you mm -hmm. know, were huge. Um, and uh, I, I guess, you know, what I liked was, you know, like this idea of, you know, looking at the world from a different angle. You know, mm -hmm. I think especially with alternative rock, you know, like having this... Um, this perspective that was not necessarily mainstream mm -hmm. you know that's something that i that i identified with and i think that has a lot of similarities with design mm -hmm. i feel that a lot of designers when you you know talk to them you realize like oh yeah like i didn't fit you know in high school <laughs> like i didn't know yep. you know uh, who my tribe was and i think with music it's kind of like mm -hmm. that and then very similar yep you know so then you know you find your your tribe so i think that part was was very nice i guess something that it was also unique no, not not unique just to me, but I think that, you know, it's particular about growing up in a place, you know, like Guatemala is that you are exposed to music from everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, like I will listen to all the music that you listen here in the States, mm -hmm. but then I will listen to, you know, uh, you know, music in Spanish and, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of music in Italian too. And it was a lot of richness, you know, wow. a lot of, you know, uh, so worldwide. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I, I think it gives reach. you a wider perspective mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I feel like I'm jumping between design and, and music, but, you know, when I think about also coming here, you know, um, from a different background, you know, as a Latin American, um, also having that perspective on design and culture and some needs that people might have in other places, you know, that is a very useful tool that gives you a unique yeah. perspective. So I, th I think those were, you know, very big yeah. uh, influences. And, and to this day, you still play, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. I, I mean, you know, I, um, I, I've been playing for over 30 years yeah. and, you know, I, yeah, I play a lot. In fact, uh, one, you know, the band that I'm with right now uh, in Rochester, we, uh, are about to release an album, um, wow. so we should come out, you know, later this year. And then, you know, the band that I was mentioning before, you know, they're still very active. They have yeah. a cult following in Guatemala. So every now and then, you know, like if I go back home and you know some dates aligned, then you know, I'll be able to, to you know, play to with play. them. Yep, I've gone in a few tours with them. You know, like yeah. very big crowd, like ten, fifteen thousand people. Uh, so it's a lot of fun. Uh, so you're a rock star. <laughs> well that i don't know <laughs> uh but but uh, i mean music is definitely yeah. you know, a big no, part sure. of my life absolutely mm -hmm. i know growing up um having two older brothers um music was a really big part of of me i really like i can like you were saying you can really relate music and design and i have that connection as well spanish rock was like a huge i think for me the way that I looked at art and design of Spanish rock really influenced me in that. So, um, yeah. And then growing up in the nineties, I can totally relate what you're, mm -hmm. what you're talking about, but that's amazing. Um, then you graduated from university and you made your way to the States, um, where you, um, did your, your graduate work at the university of Notre Dame. Right. Right. And I think for the sake, since I teach at University of Notre Dame right now, do you want to talk a little bit about your experience there? Because things are much different now, but I would love to hear kind of what your experience was there. Yeah. So when I got there, you know, I was super excited. I didn't know much about the program. And mm -hmm. um, you know, once I got there, I realized that, you know, they only take one grad student each year. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a three-year program. 
Uh, so you have three ID grad students. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, at least back then, you know, we will work together with uh, graphic design. So it was six of us in the studio. Mm -hmm. uh, and at first I, I was kind of disappointed because, you know, you always look forward to having a larger group and mm -hmm. be inspired, you know, by... Um, by your classmates. By your yeah. classmates <laughs> and having that, you know, like health, you know, like healthy competition or, mm -hmm. you know, That's like support. Culture. Yep. Um, but you know, it ended up feeling almost like a, like a professional design studio culture mm. because, you know, like many of us, several of us, you know, in there, we, we were already married, we had lives. So, you know, like we, we were at the studio around eight, nine, you know, in the morning mm -hmm. and then around five or six, you know, we were done and we would go home. So we had to make everything very efficient mm -hmm. during the day. And then I think also because the program was so small we were exposed and we worked a lot with faculty outside of design. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I will have, you know, in my, uh, as my advisors for projects, you know, uh, faculty from printmaking or from sculpture mm -hmm. or from painting. And that was great. I love that yeah. because, you know, it was such an interesting perspective, you know, kind of going back to the core of design, like, you know, like you design something for people that, you know, are, are completely outside of your world. So in this case, it was, you know, a very similar thing. Like, you know, I was focusing on some aspects of my designs and then someone from painting will come in and tell me, well, you haven't addressed this or, you know, this right. doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. And that really challenges you. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you have to react to that. So I thought that was an, an amazing experience. And, you know, the faculty that I had, I, you know, I had Paul Down, I had uh, John Caruso. I, I mean, they, you know, influenced me so much. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be where mm -hmm. I am, you know, without their uh, guidance and support and, you know, my, my, my uh, fellow grads, you know, um, you know Michael Kawagi, you know, I, I'm guessing some of the people in the podcast, you know, will know who he is. He's a troublemaker and, you know, he's, <laughs> to this day, he's one of my best friends. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you develop these very strong relationships. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's um, Notre Dame is is one of a kind. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I, it's such a small program, but then you yeah. realize when you start talking, I think especially here in the Midwest, mm -hmm. you realize how many people out in the field you know, went to Notre Dame. And, yeah. and, and I think there's something where people go there and they have you know, they, they have drive and they really want to make it as designers and they find a way to do it. Yeah, and I think it's different because I'm coming from really big schools and being a part of really big classrooms. And now that I'm teaching at Notre Dame, there's an appreciation in really having small class classes and having that one-on-one -on -one with a student is just, I think it's extremely special for the the work ethic for both the student and the educator, mm -hmm. right? It really pushes both parties to to bring their best and to have something, to always have something, right? Um, it, right. You can e easily lose that with really big classroom. Yeah, yeah. It, um, it, it, it can get challenging, yeah. um, definitely. I feel that, you know, there's a happy medium. Mm -hmm. I feel that when you have too few students, yeah. there's not enough chemistry, there's not right. enough fire. Uh, and, you know, sometimes classes can get boring or, you know, you feel like, you know, things are not really working out. And the contrary, if you have, you know, classes that are too large, then mm -hmm. people are struggling. You know, you as an educator struggle because you cannot connect yeah. with everyone uh, as much as, you know, uh, they, you know, they deserve. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, somewhere in between. I think. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. And then so you graduated and then you ended up working at GE appliances right, right which is in louisville louisville kentucky gotcha. yep and how long were you there for i was there for three years okay. yep mm -hmm. is there anything any design work that that you designed that made it to to like produced and mass manufactured made it to yeah a lot so i mean for for yeah, so it's been a while now, but I will mm -hmm. say for maybe even like maybe 10 years after I worked there, I will still see wow. you know, some of my designs mm -hmm. in you know, like Home Depot or Sears or, and then funny, funnily uh, enough, also in, uh, in on TV, you know, like oh. sometimes I will be watching a show and then, oh my gosh, like I designed it. <laughs> it's like expensive. in the background or something. Right, right. That's you know awesome. how some sitcoms, yeah. like they will have kitchens. Or, um <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I, I that part I loved because I, I felt that, you know, the work that I did, mm -hmm. you know, 
really made it out. And I, I think in general, home appliances have such a slow life cycle mm-hmm. that you see them around for a long time. That's very true. Which is very different from, let's say, electronics, mm-hmm. which, you know, sometimes they don't even last a year. Mm-hmm. When you buy an appliance, you're thinking, you know, it's going to be around breaks. 10, 15 yep. years. Otherwise, you know, I won't get it. So that puts, I think, a lot of good pre- pressure mm-hmm. on the designs that you that you create. Um, so yeah, I mean that you know, that that was a that was a great great experience. I think I also realized how complex those products are. I mean, on one hand, they're simple because you know, like they don't use a lot of complicated electronic, like some you know, like high tech devices, but uh, they involve so many people, mm-hmm. you know, uh, putting them together. Uh, and I, you know, that was very interesting. It was, uh, you know, a big surprise for me. Another big thing with, uh, you know, home appliances is that, you know, there's hardly any appliance that is designed from scratch. Mm-hmm. So it's similar to cars, you know, like mm-hmm. you take a platform and then you improve on that platform. Mm-hmm. So that's also, I think, a very interesting design exercise. When you are designing components of the product and they have to align with everything else in the product, so in, again, in case of a refrigerator, like, you know, these shelves have to live with the new doors, but with the old dispenser, and then you have to think long-term about how, you know, uh, the product will evolve and yeah. be compatible with, you know, uh, within itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, um, just like you mentioned, the pressure that is put on the design team, because if it's going to be a at a product that's going to be in your home for 20, 30 years, the aesthetic, the like it like that part of design can be outdated or or at least at least last for as long as possible right you don't want to walk into a home and then your fridge is beige right like you want to make it as modern and as um you know so that it fits and it lasts for has longevity right yeah definitely and i i feel that you know I, I I over time I become very interested in uh, you know a meaningful design. What I mean by that is something that really makes a difference, you know, that creates impact, you know, long term, mm-hmm. not not just like a you know like a, a short time or like an impulse buy. Um, and I think a lot of that you know came from you know designing home appliances and and like you said, really mm-hmm. understanding the impact that they will have five, ten, you know, twenty years. Um, after they were originally purchased, um, which I think is a very important component of design, you know, um, that is able to to survive yeah. for a long time. Yeah, and I know now a lot of the appliances are have smart electronics in them and screens and you know personal assistants and things like that. I hope they also last, you know, the time that the appliances that I grew up with last, because I feel like now that you're adding this extra, you know, touch screen and things like that, like it just gets more complex, right? right. Um, one thing that I do love that um, countries are doing, countries not the United States, <laughs> everyone <laughs> else's, but whenever I go to Mexico City, um, there's, there's this shopping area in the downtown area where it's just like blocks and city blocks of of vendors that sell very specific parts of a fridge or of a stove or of an oven or of um you know um a washing machine and i love that they encourage you to fix things instead of buying something new um i know that like the scandinavian countries do that right there's it's a really big like instead of buying new products, you fix them. Right. And sometimes the things that break aren't even something major that requires, you know, a new replacement product. It's something small that you need to replace. Um, so I think that's awesome that that the that these appliances, whoever is responsible for designing appliances, uh, do you know um, last a very long time. And if they need to be repaired, the repair is minimal, right? Right. And it's not like. You know, if it breaks, like you have to, because appliances are very expensive, but I know why they're expensive because they last you right. quite some time. But um, yeah, I think the United States needs to be part of that cycle. I think, and I know there's parts, I know here in Chicago, there's uh, recently my parents over the summer, their laundry 
their washing machine and their dryer or well, their dryer broke down and they wanted to replace the whole thing and it's like five hundred dollars to get right. a new washer but if you have a family of a washing and a you know a dryer you know to get the other part is really ex- expensive and replacing it and we were able to find a local repairman who was like thirty dollars yeah to come and he fixed the thermometer boom right and i think you know like you said it, it becomes part of the culture mm-hmm. and I, I i think that's you know uh, that has always been a big criticism you know especially i think to, you know for the u.s you know mm-hmm. this throwaway culture mm-hmm. where it's cheaper it's easier you know it's more convenient you know yeah. to, to buy something new instead of repairing it uh and um you know in many other cultures, you, you have a very different model. You know, everything works more like an ecosystem. You you have people who depend, you know, on, on jobs that involve repairing. Or, you know, if something is not useful uh, to you anymore, you don't necessarily put it out in the curb. You know, you, no. first you think about neighbors or friends who might use it, mm-hmm. and then you call them up. Uh, and I think there's also this interest of people, you know, fixing things. Um, and, you know, like, I, I think... The, the more, you know, the, the longer that I live here, the more that I see some of those influences, you know, growing up, you know, like, the, again, this this idea of fixing, for example, right now, when you were talking about this, I, I was thinking about my pants and my shoes. So, you know, the podcast doesn't allow for any visuals, but, I, you know, these are some black jeans and some white shoes. For example, the white shoes that I have used to have blue stripes. And then at some point I realized, like, I really want completely white shoes. Mm. So I painted them myself. And if you look at them, you wouldn't think that they are painted. But, you know, like for me, the idea of buying a new pair of shoes when these ones I really liked and they were already broken in and, you know, they're very, you know, very good quality. I I thought, yeah, I can do it. So that's a different aspect, yeah. you know, the jeans, again, like these were a little bit looser and then at some point I felt like, no, I want, you know, uh, a better fit. So I took out the sewing machine and, and mm. fixed them. Um, so I, I think this, you know, a lot of people talk about this, I think, especially in Latin America and Asia, you see a lot of that where people are resilient, where people are mm-hmm. more inventive and, you know, they find ways of fixing or, no. you know, things instead of just relying on, you know, getting something uh, to replace, you know, what, what is not perfect. How does that work uh, since you worked at GE? How does that work for a big corporation who the end game for them is profit, mm-hmm. right? So how can, uh, I'm not trying to, I would love for that to happen here in the States, but how can that happen with corporations like Whirlpool, right. GE? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a very good point And that's something that we discuss a lot. I mean, you know, like we we used to talk about it there, but you know, even uh, you know, in uh, design design education, it mm-hmm. comes up a lot. What what I learned from you know working in in industry is that you know at the end of the day, you know, you need money to survive. Yeah. Uh, so any ideas that you have, you know, like if they involve saving whales and you know bringing peace to the world, you know, which is awesome, they also need to you know give money to someone so that they can eat or that you know they can thrive mm-hmm. um so it kind of goes back to this and for example you know I, I i've seen some companies who are successful at this idea of fixing things because they make it part of their business model mm-hmm. or you know they they are able to develop better products that have better materials they last longer and at first you know if you think of throwaway culture you're saying you're crazy because mm-hmm. now they're not buying newer products yeah. but they're buying loyalty and you can add you know you, you can increase the prices because you have more quality so you there's other ways that you can bring money into into that system i feel that you know as designers if we understand how those models work and we can propose that mm-hmm. then I, I think that our, our ideas have more potential being yeah implemented i i think that if you know you you go in just to you know do the right thing but there's no you know benefit no economical benefit it's going to be very hard for people to buy into those yeah i am there especially in the tech sector right Mm -hmm. you have companies like apple who they make it really difficult for you to repair your phone right 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 
And that's for me, for someone who has that loyalty that you were talking about. I love Apple, but I it's just it's it's really concerning to me that they don't allow if you need to replace your battery. They actually uh, last week I think I read an article that they're gonna release a software update so that if you try to replace your battery at a third party that it's the battery it's gonna know that you're replacing it not at an apple store therefore it's going to like render your phone like so, it's not gonna work so it breaks your phone so yeah wow. pretty much it's almost like yeah and i feel like if anyone is going to um at least start to have a conversation about this repairability right. and alleviate the issue and make some change. It has to come from these innovative companies that are making these innovative products. Yeah. Right? They're so progressive when it comes to products and systems and ecosystems and, and the environment. But it's it's like they're almost it's so ironic that they're completely backwards when it when they do things like this and yeah i agree it makes me really really sad well I'm, you know it's funny that that you say sad because i i i feel that when companies get to that point you know they start playing with the emotions of the users because oh. you know what, what you are saying right now i'm thinking like you know there's a lot of guilt mm-hmm. if you want to replace a product and you know there's also a lot of desire in getting a newer product because mm-hmm. you know they're tempting you with all, all of these elements so I mean, it's hard, you know, when, when you start playing with those emotions yeah. and you think about brand loyalty, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, f- I feel that there's, you know, uh, you know, better ways of making products. You know, one yeah. of the things that I've noticed is that, you know, some people are interested in replacing, some people are interested in fixing, mm-hmm. and, you know, that could become part of the model. You know, mm-hmm. like, so, for example, in your case, you know, like, if, if there was a way, even if you had to pay a little bit extra, mm-hmm. but, you know, Paying that extra allowed you access to your phone, right? You know, so for a lot of people, like you know, uh, changing batteries, like they would do it. You know, like I remember, I used to have a you know a Garmin GPS mm-hmm. that I realized you know the battery went dead you know after three four years, and that was the only thing that was mm. you know ruining the, the the watch, just the battery. So I I ordered you know a battery uh, online. I went to iFixit. Uh, org, which mm-hmm. you know for any anyone who wants to fix things it's, a, it's an amazing resource um so i learned how to you know uh on soil there and solder the you know the battery mm-hmm. again so i did it and yeah. you know i got two more years out of the, wow. out of the watch i know that not everyone is going to do yeah. that but you know like companies could play with that yeah. um i think that there's a lot of you know different ways of of looking at this and again i think that they can still be profitable mm-hmm. um you know it's not that you are going to you know limit the, you know what a company makes yeah I, and i think in especially in silicon valley the companies that do make these phones samsung google apple they like release new phones every year and the 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 changes or the updates to the new phone is so small like they're incremental it's not like a life-changing update so I'm I'm about to say something really embarrassing, but <laughs> when like Apple started releasing their phones, I I would update an, to a new iPhone every year for like seven years mm-hmm. because I just had to get the new one, right? And then I I kept the old one because I would pay full price for it, but I would keep it. And now I have like a small Apple museum in my <laughs> at my place. But two years ago, when this phone came out, with the phone that I have right now is an is an iPhone ten. I was like, I'm not going to do that because I don't think I need to. I feel like this phone with the technology that it has, all I got to do is like, yeah, the battery is going to die, but you can replace it. And that's going to cost you like, you know, 1% of what the actual phone costs. This phone costs $1,300, right? Right. The battery is going to cost you like $100. Um, This phone with the technology that it has will be relevant for five years. Right, that I don't think I need a new phone, um, but yeah, like everything that's ha- like this is the first time that I do that. This is my second year with it, and I have no issues with it. And um, yeah, I mean, right. there needs to be some changes, and not only in the tech sector, but you know, there's other even in like fashion. I think especially in fashion, um, I think I read an article also a couple of weeks ago about how the fashion industry, the emissions 
that they release into the planet from, you know, making and dying genes and all that stuff. It's killing our planet. And instead of us buying new Levi's, like go to the thrift store and buy some used ones or, um, you know, reuse them, patch them up. Like you said, um, take them to, to the, what do you call it? To get them fitted or to get them smaller or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. But making new clothes is not only expensive, but it's also like, you know, damaging our planet, the resources, the, the CO2 that, um, yeah, I saw this video, I think it was a Vox video and I was so depressed after that. I was like, man. Yeah. It's such a big problem. Yeah. I agree. I, 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 and I feel that designers, you know, we, um, have the potential of changing a lot of behaviors, mm -hmm. you know, in, in users. Um, you know, I, I worked a lot on uh, emotional design, mm -hmm. uh, and looking at connecting emotional design and sustainability. And, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about is this idea of, um, you know, personalization, not customization, like you picking up, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, fancy features, but more like, you know, making products your own. So, you know, for example, when I hear you talk about how you have kept this phone and it still works mm -hmm. and, you know, you have kept it for a while and then you start thinking like, oh my gosh, when I went here or for this trip or for mm -hmm. my cousin's wedding, this is the phone that I have, mm -hmm. you know, it, it starts creating a very strong connection with you. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, you know, that guilt that you felt from replacing, you know, something now becomes pride because mm -hmm. you start talking about it. Like I just told you about my yep. shoes, you know, like I feel you know, great about, you know, uh, painting these shoes and the fact that, well, you know, they, they, they look like they were, you know, white all along. You also have one of one. No one else has. <laughs> right. No one, has, no one else yeah. has that. And I think in this case, you have the story. So, yeah. you know, as designers, you know, there, those are, are the strategies that, that you can use, yeah. you know, to, to make that shift. And I mean, you know, there's a lot of products that have, you know, that approach, uh, you know, like, for example, mag lights you know the flashlights mm -hmm. you know that yep. you know can last for a hundred years and, yep. you know uh, i think those are great examples yep. um you know like uh, you know, several years ago when they moved from incandescent bulbs to led bulbs mm -hmm. they decided to keep the picture the same and they actually sold retrofit uh, kits hmm. so that you could you know switch the incandescent with the led and wow. that's when you when you think that could have been a great opportunity yeah. for them to say nope new technology everyone right everyone gets new flashlights yeah and in fact you know that good. made the brand stronger because it showed how durable yeah. and resilient their products were wow. so those are I, I think i think uh changes that happen from from design and you know trying to to get into this idea of how can you you know, benefit how can you you know, empower the users so mm -hmm. that they feel you know more likely to do the right thing or you know to uh, keep products as part of their life. Mm -hmm. um, for me, that's a big thing about design. Like, you know, I, I'm guessing with most people, you know, like if you start looking at things around your house that you own, the, the, the things that matter the most are the ones that you have kept the longest or maybe the ones that you received from someone mm -hmm. else. You know, the, the, the products that have stories behind them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's an open-ended question. How can we design products or systems or solutions that can build those stories into yeah. them, you know, that are around long enough that they become ours and interesting and special. Yep. Wow. That's, that's amazing. The only thing is I don't want this phone to become a heirloom product because I don't, <laughs> I don't want to give this phone to my kid, to my child and be like, you know, right. 50 years ago. <laughs> Look what my um, dad is. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that's great. And uh, yeah, I think it's, there's so much there's so much to dissect in this topic that um i think it's our job as designers to really speak up and have a voice whether you work in these industries or not um but i think that's the first step is speaking up right yeah definitely and that that is easier said than done sometimes when you work in a corporate setting or for someone else but um yeah, let's kind of transition into now design education because you went into academia, right? You uh, are now a professor and um, I know you had talked about that, you know, you know, Paul Down and John Caruso, Michael Kawaji, these people inspired you and really, um, 
motivated you to kind of be where you're at now? Like, um, so why, why did you end up moving into design education? What was, what was, um, kind of what was your shift from moving from the design industry and then now going into teaching, right? Yeah. So I, I, I was always interested in teaching, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like I, I was teaching as an adjunct, you know, at some point. So, you know, like I always got that in me. I think the big, big change was actually beyond my, you know, um, my decision. Mm -hmm. um, so when, when I was a, a GE, um, you know, at some point I had to go back to Guatemala uh, and work from there. So I kept you know, working for G remotely. So the plan was for me to come back, you know, mm -hmm. and continue working. And, um, you know, G announced that they were selling the appliance business. So I got a call from my boss saying, you know, we cannot, you know, there's a hiring freeze. So you can stay there and, you know, keep working remotely, but we cannot bring you in, you know, with a work visa anymore. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, that same week, I got a call uh, from William Bullock mm -hmm. at University of Illinois mm -hmm. in Urbana-Champaign, uh, offering me a visiting you know, professor position. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought about it. I was like, this is fate. I mean... This is my uh, my ticket. The, yes. This, you know, like I... This is, you know, in front of me. Like, yeah. I cannot say no to this. Um... So that's that's what made the switch. So mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, it's funny how things always work out for the best. But when you think about those key moments, sometimes they're out of your hands. You know what I mean? Like things happen, yep. you know, just you know for for other circumstances. So in this case, that that was it. Um, you know, when when I transitioned into academia, I think at first it was a very hard change, and mm -hmm. I, I think the biggest change was that. From the outside, when you hear about someone being in academia, being a professor, what you think of is the teaching part. Mm -hmm. You know, like they're teaching, and um, you know that is the core, uh, you know, area of what they do. Once you start teaching, you realize that uh, research is the core area, mm -hmm. and that's how you are measured the most. You know, in terms of job placement or promotions, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, as I mentioned this, I remember that, you know, when I got to UIUC, that's where you and I met. Mm -hmm. And I remember that we had a couple of these conversations, you know, because, you know, um, there was some, you know, some limitations in, you know, how the faculty could teach some classes. And, you know, looking at this from the inside, I was like, well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of demands for research at UIUC. Uh, but that's affecting the, you know, the teaching environment. And it's affecting the students. So for me, that was a big lesson that that, mm -hmm. that I learned that, you know, how can you balance these expectations mm -hmm. in terms of research, teaching, you know, some other uh, service that you have to do at an institution. Um, and, you know, I think it took me uh, a few years to get over that mm -hmm. and to really find the balance, but also accept that, you know, being in academia full time is not of just teaching. You have to do right. a lot of other things. Um, and then I think the other part was that, you know, for me, research at first sounded more like, well, I just have to write papers <laughs> and that no one will read and go to conferences <laughs> that will yeah. have five people sitting, you know, uh, <laughs> listening to the lecture. Mm -hmm. But as I started working on that, uh, more in it, I realized that, you know, the impact that you create is very, very important. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the, the impact that you make on students and how they are able to find, you know, their own paths and career and the projects that you get to work on is so inspiring. I mean, one of the things that I noticed now with, you know, academia, you know, like I've been very lucky to work with a lot of, you know, different companies, you know, who come and sponsor research or classes. So, you know, like uh, AT&T, Autodesk, GE, uh, you know, MakerBot, Unilever. I mean, if I were, you know, out in industry, there's no way that I would have been able to work with right. so many yep. different companies. I feel that at some point it would have been my niche. You know, yep. if, if I'm in this product category, then there's only three or four companies that I can mm -hmm. go to. And, you know, if I can move to them, because sometimes you have to sign agreements that you cannot switch mm -hmm. to competitors. 
So being in academia, I feel like I'm in this neutral area yeah. where you I have can this work freedom. with everyone. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is that I get to you know come at things from a very positive, very open-ended angle. And I think companies, when you work with them, they appreciate that. And students appreciate that too, because you keep things positive. You know what I mean? As designers, I think it's our job to, the, to be in the future. And in most cases, we always see that future as better than the reality that we have today. Yep. And I think that's easier to do when you are in academia, because you can, you, you can dream that up. I, I feel that you have to dream that up. Uh, you, you owe that to, you know, to new generations. Yeah, um, I think being in education uh, at a pretty young stage, I'm able to, and having experience working with other educators and things like that, um, I think it's, I've, I've been able to understand how important it is for educators to really be connected, like you mentioned, to all these companies to have access to because that that's what makes you the educator that's at the forefront of what's trending. That's what's going to educate the students, the next generation of designers, right? And if you're an educator that doesn't do that or doesn't provide resources like that, and um, then it makes it a little more difficult for design students to to be prepared for industry, right? And I think. There is there is great professors, and I think that there's everyone else. <laughs> That's yeah. all I'm gonna say. And I think when you're a student, you really have to find that great professor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because there's very few of them out there, very few of them that are really in tune with what's happening with not only design education, with but all, but in tune with what's happening with the industry, um, especially now more than ever. When I graduated from school. Um, industrial design was, you know, really, um, it was like you had blinders, it was CAD, prototyping, sketching, CAD, right? right. Um, everyone was applying to a job at Teams Design, <laughs> me <laughs> and like 20 of my classmates. Yeah. And it was for one job. Now, define industrial designer, right? You can do so many things with it. You can work for Uber, for Lyft, to design experiences and go into exper- you know, experiential design, do discursive design, do so many things, right? Um, but then as an educator, it the pressure really is on you to prepare the students um, to at least push them in the right direction or have them connected to the right people, collaborate with the companies that are going to bring value to your classroom, right? Not all educators do that. Like I said, there's the great educators and then there's the rest. And if you're a student and you're listening to this podcast, really find that great educator because it, it I honestly think that that educator is, is a, it's a life changing when you find that educator and you take a class and they influence you. It, I honestly think it is life changing to some extent. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I mean, when I think back of, you know, those key moments, mm-hmm. you know, you know, uh, that shaped my career, you know, most of them have to do with educators. these educators. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think back of, you know, like these learning, you know, experiences. And I, I many times, like, I even wonder if, like, if the educator remembers that that moment happened. But I remember what he or yeah. she said yeah. and how it happened. Um, so I, I, th- I think that's a, a huge component. Mm-hmm. You know, so, something else that I feel that it's important is that I, I feel the role of a good educator is to help you know students to find themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes students kind of go in like, who's going to teach me to sketch? Who's going to teach me to use CAD? Who's going to teach me to do the renderings? You know, uh, and yeah, I mean, you, kinda teach, you can teach those things and you, you, you are expected to do it. But, but I think more than that is, you know, facilitating or enabling this space, you know, this studio space, classroom space, where students can find their own paths mm-hmm. and, and understand what is the best rendering for them. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, I, I, I think when that happens, it's so liberating for everyone. Because for the educator, I think it removes a lot of the pressure because you don't feel like you have to be the best renderer mm-hmm. or the best modeler, you know, in the room. 
it's like being a, a great coach. You know, you yep. have talent all around you. You can learn from them. Mm-hmm. And it's just about, you know, facilitating that and, you know, challenging, the, you know, um, the people around you in a way that they find their, their own path. And I think for, for the students too, it's also kind of liberating. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I see students that are frustrated because they feel that they haven't learned anything that, everything that they need to learn in school. And I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, there's no way that, you know, we can mm-hmm. teach everything. That will never happen. Yeah. Uh, it's just the reality. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like being comfortable discovering things or, you know, feeling like, you know, in a given time or project, you know, like they were able to grow ideas or to move from A to B and then feeling empowered you know, comfortable so that they can do that again in a different place, you know, in the workplace. I, th- I think that's kind of the goal of, you know, an mm-hmm. educator. Um, we, educators are grossly underpaid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just, you, I mean, you're right. Like, I don't, I don't, and now you're in the seat that you're an educator. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if I ask you how many students have you influenced, you probably have no idea, right? But when you were a student, you know how many professors influenced you, right? Right, right. Um, but that's not the point. That's not why you're an educator, right? So um, it is, it's super, it's the most rewarding job I've ever had in my life. And I hope that doesn't change. And um, yeah, that, that's why I went into academia. Right. It's a very selfless um, job because you want, you have, you really immerse yourself and you really have an invested interest in the students succeeding, right? right. And that takes a lot of time and passion. It, it, and It takes a lot of time, uh, but I, I do feel that it's a two-way street. Mm-hmm. I, I feel that if you go in uh, just for the students, yep. uh, I feel that you will grow frustrated mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 and you will lose you know, your, I don't know, your drive. Yeah. I, I think that it's similar to, you know, like sometimes you see parents that are overworked, like they, they you know, they, their life is their children <laughs> and then children leave or they grow yeah. and then they're like, oh my gosh, what happened? <laughs> you know what I mean? So I feel that as yeah. an educator, I mean, the, the idea is that everyone is grown because there's so much that you learn from students yep. every day. Yep. They keep you on your toes. You, you learn new things. They challenge you. And I think being open to that mm-hmm. and also finding ways of doing what you like and bringing that into you know the classroom mm-hmm. uh, are ways of, uh, you know, uh, everyone connecting. Like right now I'm thinking one of my you know favorite classes that I had uh, was actually a class that G sponsored. So it was several years after I worked at G. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, you know, we talked and we said, okay, let's, you know, do this uh, sponsored project. And... I remember, like, I, I had such a fun time, you know, during that mm-hmm. class. And I could see it in the students. Like, they were having a blast and the results of the project were amazing. And I feel that a big reason of that was that, you know, like, I was having fun. Mm-hmm. And I was able to, you know, extend that to the students and to show how excited I was and how, you know, how, I don't know, like, obsessive I will get at, about some details of, of appliances. <laughs> yeah. That sounds kind of freaky, but you know, in my case, it's true. Um, and I, I think I think that you know students appreciated that openness, and I think you know, uh, no. you were also very happy with the result. So again, I think I think it's um, you know when you go into the classroom, yes, you have to give yourself to the students, but you also have to think about what you are getting out because if you're not getting anything mm-hmm. out of the classroom as an educator. I, I think I think that you know yep. you it will be short lived. Yeah, mm-hmm. that sounds like an adjunct. <laughs> right? yeah, and, yeah, and that's true. And and you know I th- I think it's always a point of entry. You know this yeah. idea of I'm going back. You know like I, I want to give back what I learned. I want to influence people just like I was influenced. I think that's how everything gets started. But um, you have to keep thinking about what's you know the deeper meaning. Right? You know how are you gonna keep growing? Yeah. Um, uh, as as you do that job. <laughs> yeah i mean i guess that's the the thing about education is as an educator you have to keep every year there has to be growth right right um not stagnation right, right. 
And and I think I think that's another important yeah. element. I mean, you were talking about like you know being connected with industry or you know bringing people in, and I I feel you know in my case I I like to do that a lot because mm -hmm. again I'm curious about what other people are doing, and I I had such a great experience in industry that I, I don't want to lose that, and and luckily I you know I had so yep. I I've kept. Uh, connected with you know different companies and you know I do consultancy every now and then you know right now I'm about to start a sabbatical I'll be working for Autolesk you know for for the next uh, year um, as as a research fellow and you know I've I've done a lot of projects with you know with them and with other companies and I I feel that in that's you know in the classroom it gives you more to talk about you know. Uh, when you are helping students, you know you have more things to to suggest. When they are looking for jobs, you have you know more things or more people that you can connect them with. Mm -hmm. Again, like you know, for me, for example, coming to the IDSA conference is always such a blast because you get to see so many people. You know, and, and you you become part of mm -hmm. you know that community. Um, yeah, it's it's very rewarding. Yeah. It's it's fun. So. Um, um, you know how Dieter Rams has his, what will we call it? His, uh, list of, his 10 principles yes. for design. Right. If there was a list of principles for design educators, what would, what would you, what would one of them be if, if you had to think of, of what the design educators need? in order to be, you know, in academia? I think for me, the biggest one is respect. Mm. You have to respect the students. You, you have to respect that they are, you know, their own designers. Mm -hmm. You are not to impose how you design on them. You are not to expect that they will become I mean, you. <laughs> yeah. I think that's very, very important. I think another one kind of related to respect is that I feel that you need to assume that everyone is there for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. And if a student is struggling or not performing, I don't think it's because they don't want to do well. I think there's something that's in preventing them from doing that. Mm -hmm. So instead of criticizing or, you know, like attacking or just assuming like, oh, this person is lazy. Um, I think that you can go deeper and try to find out, you know, what's what's going to happen. Um, so that's kind of, I, I think, I think for me, a big one. I, I, I you know, I, I, I've mentioned this a few times, but I feel that the role of an educator for me is more similar to the role of an editor. Mm -hmm. So imagine that you're writing a book and you go to the editor. A good editor helps you to you know express what you want to say better. Yeah. That person doesn't go and change what you want to say. Right. I mean some editors do <laughs> and they are not yeah. good editors. Yeah. So I think as an educator it's a very similar role. You know, when a student comes in and you're like, no, that's not going to work. I'll tell you what you should do. Right. You're not respecting them. That's a very good analogy. Mm -hmm. So I think the more that you are an editor, the more that you are like giving suggestions, yep. giving ideas, but not imposing anything. Mm -hmm. I think the, the you know, kind of going back to what I was telling you, like showing this path, you know, like not, mm -hmm. not giving the answers or not, not explaining how things need to be done but rather how they can develop their own style their own voice i think all of this is connected you know like uh uh understanding what each student wants to accomplish and then helping them to accomplish it that's a very good point the second part of that you said uh the students thinking or judging them because they're struggling or you think they're lazy um yeah that sounds like me when i was in school <laughs> Um, but, uh, no, that, that's amazing. That's great. That's, I'm, I'm really happy that, that I've, I, I, I think in my mind, I knew that you obviously have to respect the students, but talking to other educators, I don't think I've ever heard anyone actually 
you know say it right mm-hmm. which is which is great um that's 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 amazing um well let's kind of put a bow on this podcast and let's kind of wrap things up um i might i have a couple more questions to ask you um one of them is you've been in design education you've done so much you've been in industry um you've traveled the world right you've gone to you know uh, other parts of the world for design to speak at conferences i mean your cv is super super long and very impressive work that you've done and um thank you uh what what is next for alex what's next for for you as far as like what are some other things you'd like to accomplish in design or or even like other areas that you'd like to explore that you haven't done so yet yeah so i i, I mentioned you know, uh briefly that um you know next week next year i i'll be on sabbatical so i'm very excited about that uh, I'll be working with Autodesk. Um, the, the area that I, I'll be focusing on is uh, the future of learning. So, you know, Autodesk, um, I mean, most people know Autodesk as, you know, they create CAD software, right? So Fusion, Inventor, Maya, uh, AutoCAD, you know, Alias. Uh, but the way that they look at how people work, how people interact, how people learn, you know, whether... Yeah, and, and yes, and as a, as a lifelong you know process, it's very very exciting. So uh, you know, I'll be working with um, you know the team that's looking at learning futures, mm-hmm. trying to understand better how people learn. Uh, when you look at CAD software, that's a you know very hard tool to understand. I know you know all the designers we can relate to these learning curves and you know just being frustrated with a given software for weeks before you can uh, you know know what you are doing. <laughs> So uh, a big question is how can you improve that process? But I think something that we are looking at is not only looking at the, you know, the, the software itself, but really understanding the context around it. So community, you know, how, how is the relationship or the dynamic with your you know, uh, you know, teammates uh, or with your colleagues or classmates helping you or hindering you, you know, from making progress? And then the other one is the context around you. I mean, you know, many times, for example, when you advance on a design, it's not because you were sitting on the computer working. Maybe you went out for a walk and, you know, a tree inspired you or a conversation inspired you. Uh, so how can you capture that data you know, and bring it back into the software? You know, those are kind of uh, right now open on the tender questions that I, I hope I get to explore. So you can yeah. ask me again next year. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's one, one area. Um, I think in general, you know, something that I love, uh, about being in academia too is that I, I I always get to design, but I get to design the things that I want to explore. Uh, so there's not no pressure of this has to sell or this has to be done by a certain date or yeah. you know, we need to meet first quarter expectations. Um, so I think in that element, you know, in that aspect, I, I'm, I'm excited about continue designing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I love is to combine digital and analog tools. I love this idea of, you know, creating a lot of things in CAD and then, you know, making them physical and then going back and forth. Um, so those are things that I, you know, that I'm very curious about. And as you mentioned, I, I, you know, I'm lucky that I get to go to a lot of different places and mm-hmm. connect with people around the world. Um, so I hope that I get to do more of that. There's so much that you learn from other cultures, uh, from how other people live, how they look at design, the challenges that they have, how they overcome them. Um, and I think we need it. We need that, Mm -hmm. you know, as a society, I think we need, we need to be more united. You know, a lot of this, I don't know, discourse that's, you know, bringing, uh, people apart, uh, we need to bring them together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I want to say that as, as designers, you know, we have a privileged position to make that happen. So let's make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your insights, for your time on the podcast. And, um, um, you know, you're someone that I truly admire. I was your student, you're my professor, and you're one of my, you know, favorite professors and i i like you said about your professors i wouldn't be where i'm at without your guidance and everything that i've gone through i've always consulted you and things like that so i really appreciate that and then now that i now that i'm a part of advanced design and you know i'm able to share that with you as well that's super exciting and 
uh, really uh, looking forward to working with you on, on you know collaborative stuff in the future. So thank you, Hector. Thank you. Likewise, really appreciate I, it. I love that. <laughs> from you know student uh, instructor to colleagues to friends. Uh, you know, it couldn't get any better. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And if you're um, you know in Chicago for IDC, you know Alex, you'll be tomorrow. You'll be giving a presentation or a lecture at the education to symposium right yep so it, so, it, it will be a, a talk about a project that we did with makerbot and autodesk uh designing wearable devices and uh, 3d printing mm -hmm. as part of the design process for your graduate students right? yes it yep. was grad students so I, I had the opportunity to come to rit in april and you you know you talked about it and i was able to see it so um yeah for those who are there we'll be super lucky to to listen to your lecture so thank you so much thank you for tuning into context and uh, we will see you next time thank you see ya